Stefan Itterbron is the founder of Cake, a truly innovative and potentially game-changing manufacturer of electric motorcycles. Stefan's a seasoned entrepreneur who refined his skills with the 2004 creation, subsequent development and ultimately sale of POC or POC, piece of cake, perhaps the global standard in top-tier, supremely designed protective gear for adventure sports. Stefan's entrepreneurial flair and proven skills across strategy, design and branding have been focused since 2016 instead on the growth of cake bikes, groundbreaking electric motorcycles that delight design aficionados as much as they thrill environmentalists and deliver for those focused on building a more sustainable circular economy. Cake bikes, as Stefan will explain, seek to combine excitement with responsibility while helping to drive a broader society-wide shift in the direction of a zero-emission future. Stefan is zooming in to speak with us this week. Plus, later in the show, we'll hear about a journey from outlier brand to billion-dollar-plus business when our good friend Bob Sheard visits us once again for another branding corner. This week, Bob shines a light on the rise and rise and rise of outdoor apparel company Arcteryx. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. So we start with Stefan Itterborn, founder and CEO of Cake. It's a huge pleasure to welcome Stefan to the show. Stefan, a very warm welcome to Monocle, to Midori House. Great to have you in London. Um, perhaps I know you're going to tell us why why you're here in London uh, right at the moment. But as well as reflecting on that, can you tell us a little bit, of, I guess, about the start of the journey as well? We're actually opening up our first site here in London, and it happens to be on Curtain Road. And Curtain Road is one of the entrance points of my kind of, you know, in-product communication design career. I was representing a company named SCP. It's still around, Sheridan Coke Production, and it's on Curtain Road. So next to our new site is actually where I went being, you know, 20, working together with Sheridan Coakley, the, the guy who owns the, the brand SCP. And that's actually how I got going through... You know, designer of, of, of designers of his, like Jasper Morrison, Matthew Hilton, Constantin Gritchik, James Irvine, and, and so forth. So it's extremely exciting getting to the point geographically where everything got started. But I started in the furniture business, initially importing contemporary furniture and, and design to, to Scandinavia, living in Stockholm and working from Stockholm. And uh, that's pretty much how I got into the, uh, spent a lot of time in Milan, and uh, we were a crowd of people being, you know, in our early 20s and from around the world. And that's how I built my network, basically. And then there was a very important change in society in conjunction with financial issues in the early 90s. And what happened back then was basically that values started pointing towards traditional Scandinavian values. So I, instead of importing contemporary design, I started my own furniture brand, CBI. And that worked really, really well. There was a true purpose in everything I did at all times, like trying to achieve relevant design that reflects its time. And the better you do that, the higher the chances that those products will actually become classics and therefore supporting, you know, longer life cycles and durability and basically ending up being sold in auction houses 50 or 200 years later. Anyhow, I got to the point where I wasn't bringing enough purpose. So I got back to ski racing as my kids, my two sons, my older sons, when they were four or five years old, and, you know, was a dad training and, and going racing with, with my kids. 
And uh, the disturbing aspect in that sense was basically the uh, level of protection they were using while training and racing, and especially helmets. And before that, there were only downhill skiers and, and kids using helmets, so the level of quality and protection was kind of vague and bad. So with that worriness being a dad and a parent in that sense, I figured I should bring a new level of standard to the market in terms of protection. I started a company named POC with the mission of saving lives and reducing consequences of accidents with better protection, more accurate products, basically, in that sense. So targeting skiers, snowboarders, cyclists, and so forth, did that for a number of years, sold it twice, but basically leaving in 2016, starting my current endeavor, which is Cake, Electric Motorcycles. So that was, maybe I was, was a bit wordy, but anyhow, that, that's the story. <laughs> that's good. It's an, amazing, it's an amazing story. And I think what's interesting, Stefan, is people who are familiar with Cake now and the values that it represents and the values you espouse, I think will recognize some of those key markers you've described, the moments, how you refine these, these values and some of these themes that maybe we'll come back to, which are about purpose, a bit of patience as well with doing things. And I think this idea of permanence, yeah. which is something that's enduring, which we'll definitely come back to because yeah, I yeah. find that I find that really interesting. Was POC a proof of concept? Was it piece no, of no, cake? It, it's is that what it piece was? Of cake, so. what, what, what's, what's with the cake? Yeah. Everyone loves cake, yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Why no, but, cake, but Stefan? Basically, <laughs> the thing was that I, I wanted, if you look at the, the kind of symbol, which is the POC symbol, it kind of derives from the crash test dummy symbol, which is used by metal mannequins when they're crash testing cars. And that was the symbol graphically that I always wanted to use at some point for whatever reason. And in this case, starting a protection business, it was the perfect symbol. So not knowing what to name the company back then, I was like one morning, you know, sitting in my car trying to figure out what, what that symbol actually look, looks like. And looking, looking at it from above, it looks like pieces of cake. So fun saying, and the P for peace and the, the O for all and, and C for cake made a short, good name, POC, that was easy to pronounce everywhere. So now looking at the symbol of cake, my current business, it's like there's a cake, but there's a piece of cake missing in that symbol. So, you know, long story, it's nothing which <laughs> makes sense to any anyone but myself. So the piece of cake is gone and the rest of the cake is still there. So that's why the name of the current business is cake. I think that's pretty simple. I yeah, can get my mind yeah, yeah, around maybe, it. Like maybe. I said, everyone likes cake. Now, one yeah. funny thing, I'm sure, Stefan, yeah. people have said to you, ah, so now you're doing electric motorcycles. Mm-hmm. This must be the culmination of a, a lifetime on two wheels and a yeah. deep love of motorbikes and being a biker. No. But they couldn't be more wrong. And I find this really intriguing that you've said... What cake's about is yeah. it's the opposite of motorcycling culture. And yeah. I, I had to learn to ride a, yeah. a bike. How, yeah. how come? That's a crazy decision then, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, no, it's an interesting kind of process that I went through. I'm the kind of guy who actually, you know, I'm disturbed by noisy motorcycles in the street. I'm like, leave me, you're, you're disturbing. So what happened was that I ran into an electric motorbike maybe 2013 or 2014. And it shouted at me, get me, ride me, get out in the back country without polluting or uh, without disturbing. There's no true noise to it. So I got one of those. And eventually I had 10 or 15 bikes at my barn at my country house, all electric, not because I wanted to start a business. More like, you know, I was so passionate about that whole experience. And I, I had hundreds of friends trying these bikes. And it was interesting, and it didn't matter if they were professionals or if they were first-timers, and especially, I'd say, young ladies that never, ever dared jumping on a motorbike before. But due to the fact that you don't need to clutch, you don't need to change gears, there's no roary, scary noise to it, 
they went out and got back with the biggest smile on their faces saying that this is absolutely the most wonderful thing I've done. And that made me realize that this is going to flip the motorcycling space upside down. So instead of being macho, roary, aggressive, excluding and, and complicated, it's inviting, it's easy to ride, it's silent and it's clean. So. I think it's pretty much the opposite of what the motorcycling culture still is when it comes to the uh, combustion engine side of things. And, and just in terms of the the dream, you said uh, I didn't intend to kind of start no. a business, but once that began to take shape, was the dream a great product story? You know, you've refined products all through your life. But, yeah. or, or was there maybe something deeper? Because obviously, again, this yeah. point about sustainability, clean living – Right from the start, did you think, I can do something that changes not just motorcycling culture, but the way we're living and engaging yeah, with and, the planet? Honestly, I had no intention of changing the motorcycling culture itself. I totally respect the motorcycling habitat. Aside from just analysing what I believe could be done differently or, or, or better, it was also the, uh, the potential, the opportunity of inspiring the market towards zero emission by combining excitement with responsibility at some point. And I think that mm. design is just such a wonderful tool of actually, I mean, it, it's all about communication. So I'd say that as much as I'm passionate about the actual product itself and what can be further developed and how far we can get in terms of different specs and whatnot, I think that the force of actually inspiring and making people change mindset and come along for a... Uh, desperate need in terms of moving towards that zero emission future is probably the greater reason for getting stoked and not being able to hold back, just having to move forward and do it. And was it also important, therefore, I know you've got this partnership with Northvolt and about the journey to zero. Yeah, it's not just words. You're serious about how you can accelerate and get to that to that point again. Yeah. Was, was that important from the beginning? Absolutely. I, I think that I have something which is at times it's actually an asset, and at times it's also something which is holding me back because I'm very honest to myself. I believe and also to anyone out there that I'd be addressing. So in that sense, there's no room in my life for shortcutting or cheating. I need to do everything in depth. The proof is in the pudding, and unless I can actually prove to myself and everyone out there critically, you know, looking into what we are doing, I'd be blushing and and crying my heart out if I was caught with my pants down. So there's some kind of a Lutheran aspect of having to do it the right way. Mm. I mentioned this idea about permanence and your interest in that. Lots of brands, great brands, doing amazing work, game-changing work even, talk a good game about sustainability. Mm -hmm. And it's often about, well, there's there's sometimes questions about greenwashing and so on. Why is this focus on permanence so important? Because I guess it's if you spend money on something that endures, that lasts, you said earlier, 30 years, 50 years, 100 years from now, that is sustainability yeah. in action. Do we lose focus on that sometimes and focus too much on a bit of box ticking when it comes yeah. to sustainability instead of these more yeah, yeah. old-fashioned principles yeah, yeah. almost? No, I, I think, you know, I almost cry when I see how people are piggybacking on trying to pretend they're sustainable. And I think that the biggest issue is not whether we buy this or that and you know, how clean it is from a number of different perspectives. It's important to understand that and to implement it the best you can. But the biggest challenge is basically our pace of consumption. We buy too much mm-hmm. crap too often that ends up being garbage before we know it. 
So the challenge there is because everything which is more elaborated, and in, in my case, it is about the permanent side of things. It's about extending life cycles. And I kind of promote four things, which is purpose, innovation, performance, and physical quality in combination to promote that. But that said, something that does support those four aspects will, by automation, become a more expensive product. Mm. So I think the biggest challenge here is for us to find ways to finance the use of our products in a way where people actually, from a liquidity perspective, have the ability of supporting the use of a product, which will be, at buying point, more expensive. But if we have systems and structures and service offerings and so forth, that's how we need to play it. And I think that this is a much bigger question. It's not us. I think that the whole market economy needs to find the ways around the short-term throwaway attitude because that is what creates the most pain and issues and, and problems that we need to fight. Well, yeah, and it drives so much waste, of course, which is a problem. Yeah. Some of the initiatives that you guys are involved with, I love seeing, and I always watch your videos of the bikes in action in all these different scenarios. Obviously, the sort of urban deployment is hugely exciting. It yeah. could be a big volume play. But I love this engagement with the natural world. And you've spoken, I know, before about taking the products out there into the landscape right at the beginning and why that was really important and now they're doing things like working on game reserves and stuff like this which I think really demonstrates that joined up way of looking at things is that important to you that you show people maybe their stakeholders in government on a nation state level it's not just a great product and a good business but it can be integrated into living in a more responsible way yeah and I think that with the challenges that we're all facing We need to integrate business and businesses into the body of society. So I think it's kind of old school the way I see it, Mm -hmm. just running a profitable business. You need to have a relevant spot working from there and making sure that there's no harm in terms of other sectors, individuals, spaces, nature, whatever it might be. So that kind of play where there is perfect, alignment and I'd say respect between everyone sharing this whether speaking about the planet or a city or whatever it might be that is a must and I think that we're not alone we see a lot of companies and initiatives understanding and promoting that so um, I just hope it accelerates fast enough Mm. and I think there's an interesting sort of analogy between that approach and the actual products themselves because we should put the bikes right in the frame because there may be some of our listeners who've never seen one What's really clever about it, I think, Stefan, is it's not about shoehorning an innovative power plant into a conventional bike. And that's how things used to be. It was all a bit reductionist. It's a reimagining, isn't it, of what the motorbike is from, I guess, the very first pen stroke with the design team. Again, was that part of the mission from the beginning to to tear up the the rule book? Yeah, yeah. And and not because I needed to tear it up just, you know, being obnoxious. It was about optimizing the performance of an electric two-wheeler. What I experienced with my first bikes, getting those from different places of the world where they were being built and developed, was that they were simply just swapping a combustion engine drivetrain with an electric one. In the beginning, I didn't have a problem with it, but the more I kind of invested time while I was thinking about what a perfect vehicle in that sense would be, I started realizing that I'm very familiar with the bicycle industry, for instance, having been there with POC, 
and you know, keen cyclists myself and so forth, are very in depth interested in terms of construction and material and geometry and so forth in that sense. And that movement have been so much more energetic compared to the motorcycling side of things the past 25 years in terms of constructing super efficient, super light stuff and so forth. So, so based on that, I kind of turned around and said, I will try and make a vehicle which is as light as possible and therefore needing less battery cells to be able to reach a certain performance instead of just using the same chassis of the combustion engine bike and needing to put on tons of battery cells to get to similar performance as the, the former combustion engine bike. And that was pretty much the way forward. And that's also how typology of the bike changed because it had to. Mm. There were different sizes, geometry and so forth. And and the interesting thing, which I embrace and love in that sense too, is that there was nothing from the shelf that we could actually buy, whether it be hubs or tires or wheels. We had to develop every single part from scratch. And to be able to get to that point with the first off-road bike that we launched back in 2019 in series production, which is about 40% lighter compared to an equivalent combustion engine bike. That said, the process of actually developing everything from disc brakes to, to foot pegs to handlebars and stems and it's just magic. And when you have those things coming from the vendors and manufacturers, I mean, it's a process of... It's just a different scale. It's like looking at the hub, for instance. It's like the most beautiful building, but smaller size, as you can think of. And then the next day, there's a front fender showing up, and it's like, wow. So that is passion. It gets me going together with the other stuff that I enjoy doing. No, I love it. Was it almost an alchemy process? Because you still can't yeah. really be sure until you put all those constituent parts together that the overall is going to No, I, I think deliver. that there, there's a lot of trial and error, both from a uh, theoretical point of view where you, you need to move back and realize that this is not going to work. But then it's a lot of hands-on practice experience that you get. We believe this was going to be the way forward, but it's actually doing the opposite. So I think it's a lot of trial and error and takes a lot of time. It's frustrating, but extremely satisfying. What about what happens next? Because I know you are reluctant to be recognized as someone who's driving potentially real change in terms of mobility and the way people engage with their cities and, mm -hmm. and with the countryside. But it seems to me that that is the direction for, for Cake. It has yeah, that yeah. kind of, of power. Is that is that scary? No, um, no, I think it's wonderful. And I, I'd say that, again, combining the interests of the different things that are being embedded in whatever I'm doing, it's also the business side of things, which, again, is supported by my sports, Stefan, kind of guy, which is setting up targets, training hard, coaching the team, sharing perspectives, moving fast, failing, standing up, dusting off together and continuing on that same direction and eventually succeeding. To me, it's the other part of me, and I, I want to make sure that with the potential ability of inspiring people to come along and change means of transportation, going fossil-free, and not at least inspiring the commercial side of things for mm. a change in urban transportation. And I think that's where the line part, our revenues will come down the line. We start on the off-road side of things, speaking about what we're doing. It's more Patagonia than Kawasaki. But we also need to do that same thing to be able to support the aspect of permanence because unless we know what it takes to make a bike that jumps 30 yards or would do a double flip and withstand that, we wouldn't be able to implement that kind of durability and quality in our standard bikes being used for commuters and so forth. So 
I was anticipating this boom to happen. I'd say that we're in the perfect storm right now. Six months ago, I would have said to you in a chat like this that our business-to-business users and customers, they're sustainability-oriented companies into short-haul urban transportation around the world. Today, I would say, unless that same company has a fossil-free solution within the next 24 months, they'll be out of business. So what used to be visions and values has become lawmaking and regulations. Mm. With Paris, you know, I had Holland decided to close out all their cities by 2025 when it comes to cars. So it's not only about diesel and gasoline anymore. It's about changing the means of transportation. And, of course, there'll be public transportation, people, you know, using buses and subways and whatnot. There'll be bicycles, you know, you can walk. But if you need to bring stuff with you, whether it's bringing parcels to a customer or if it's delivering pizzas or if it's a carpenter needing to do woodwork in the middle of the city, bringing tools and planks and whatever it might be, it's pretty tough using the bus then. And if you've got something which is a sturdy, robust two-wheel vehicle, which is fossil-free with the ability of actually trailing stuff or putting on different devices and attachments to bring whatever you need with you, it's not only cake. It's going to be a vast number of different players out there. But that's the scenario that we're working towards. And that is going to be damn good for this planet. That was Stefan Itterborn, founder and CEO of Cake. And you can learn more about the brand and their amazing machines. Head to ridecake.com. Next up, we take a little detour for another one of our branding corners, where we hear the story of a brand, its creation or perhaps its reinvention from someone who knows a thing or two about the dark arts of branding. Our friend Bob Sheard, co-founder and CEO of the agency Fresh Britain and a regular on this programme, stopped by to talk to us about outdoor apparel brand Arcteryx. Bob began by explaining when he was first introduced to the brand. Here's Bob. I was working for a couple of their competitors and it was around about 96, 97 when I went to a trade show in Utah and we saw them for the first time and we were blown away. This was product design that shifted in paradigms. It was the first time we'd seen waterproof zips self-coloured to the fabric. It was the first time we'd seen articulated seams. Three-dimensional sculpting was just unbelievable and with this weird name that no one could say. (laughs) And then it was about maybe 10 years later, I got the job to redesign the Arcteryx brand and the brief was they're at 100 million US, get them to a billion but keep them special because it's dead easy to make a brand really, really successful but to make a brand successful and retain its credibility is the artistry and it all. So I went over there and it was brilliant. Met the founder, Jeremy Gard, who just said as I walked in, he said, look, I don't trust people like you. All you do is sell adjectives. I said, I agree. I couldn't agree with you more. There are no adjectives in the Bible, only holy. <laughs> he said, but I said, we, you know, we've, the key is we've got to capture you and what you do and we've got to capture it and you're a really young brand. So everyone who's familiar with the Arcteryx aesthetic being minimalist, the inspiration for that is possibly the most maximalist window in the world. It's in La Chapelle, the Justice in Paris. And he said, look at that window. It's got more pieces of glass than you could ever dream of. But there's no resistance there. Your eye isn't drawn to any one thing. It's drawn to the whole. He said, you never see a fucked up mountain, Bob. You just see the whole beautiful mountain. 
And if you see a truly beautiful woman, you're not drawn to one bit of her, you just see all of her. The same with a beautiful man, you just see all of him. So we're about designing balance and taking the ego out of design. So if there's something on an Arctrix product that catches the eye, we remove it. And so capture that. But I also sort of was interested in, for him and the brand, was how do we capture the meaning? What is it about coming from British Columbia that changes the way they behave, that creates the kind of design that they create versus the North Face? And so the work we did, we said, okay, let's look at meaning of place. And the North Face is based in America, and it's totemic of North America. North America is symbolic of Western civilization. Western civilization has been around for about 5,000 years, and it's fundamentally been country or tribes colliding with tribes, religions fighting religions, civilizations fighting civilizations with the odd outbreak of peace. And what that's done is it's created an incredibly competitive psychosis within Western civilization, especially within the land, the outdoors, and sports. So there are no global sports where there isn't a definitive loser. So it's not like a global yoga channel. Um, and it's created a very competitive relationship with nature. We all want a mortgage. We all want our own nature. If you look at all, uh, go to any outdoor shop, it's just pictures of people conquering nature. In Genesis, I think it's verse 6, it talks about man's dominion over nature. So we want to own the land, we want to own it, and we want to, our ego is dominant versus the spirituality of the land. So if you want to present your ego and you want to have a relationship with nature that's about ownership, then go where in the North Face. However, coming from Canada, what Arcturic shares is a civilization that's called Northern Civilization that touches the Arctic Circle. It has the same shamanic and nomadic influences as the Urals and Scandinavia. So nomadic in that you leave no trace, there's no ownership there, and shamanic in that you live in balance with nature. So how we built Arcteryx was basically recognizing that everybody else owns nature and is ego-driven, Arcteryx is not ego-driven and it's to live in balance with nature. And there's that clear differentiation. The next piece was, okay, well, who's the narrator? What do you want to be, Arcteryx? And we had 22 of the leadership team in Squamish. And we showed them Kill Bill 2, where the sword maker gives the sword to Uma Thurman. And we said, right, your alpha jacket is the sword. You've got to decide whether you're Uma Thurman, the warrior, or whether you're the craftsman. And I think 19 out of the 20 or 21 out of the 22 decided that everyone wants to be the warrior. And one bloke said, no, we're not. And I said to the room, look, before you make this decision, consider one question. Where is the magic of your brand? Is the magic of your brand in the who wears it? Or is the magic of your brand in the product design? And the one guy that disagreed with Warrior who said, look, guys, we're craftsmen. He said, three weeks ago, SEAL Team 6 flew into northern Pakistan and killed bin Laden. All 42 of them were wearing Arcteryx products. Now, we can't claim to have killed bin Laden, but we can claim to have equipped the guys that did. So we did the vote again, and it was all 22 to craftsmen. <laughs> and that was how we did it. And just finally, there's a lovely story. I think somewhere the valuation today of Arcteryx is probably somewhere between one and a half to three billion. No one knows this, but it used to be called rock solid. 
and all it did was sell climbing harnesses. And they were invited to put their climbing harnesses in a film that was called Medicine Man with Sean Connery, where he was discovering a cure for cancer in the in the canopy of the South American rainforest. And uh, they got a call, said, do you want to send your harnesses down? And they said, yeah, but we need to change the name because it's called Rock Solid and we don't want to send the fireworks up on Rock Solid. So over the weekend, they were busy trying to think of a name, and the name Arcturix is just a corruption of the Latin name for the bird that was the first bird to leave water and fly. So the logo you'll see is a reptile, but it should have really long legs. If you look closely at the back of the logo, there's a straight edge, and that shouldn't be there. And what happened is they sent the logo to be trademarked to the lawyer, but the fax paper ran out. So he trademarked it with... (laughs) Oh, the leg's missing. So you've now got a brilliant, wonderful brand with a valuation way over a billion with half the legs missing off the logo. You might never look at the Arcteryx bird logo quite the same way. Again, I'm always telling you that the entrepreneurs will help you to see the world a little differently. Big thanks to Bob Sheard of Fresh Britain. And we'll have some more like that in the weeks ahead here on the programme. That's all for this week, though. The show was expertly mixed and edited by Jack Dewars. My thanks to him, as always. And, of course, thanks once again to Stefan and all the Cake team and to Bob and the Fresh Britain crew, too. Listen again and find out more about the show at monocle.com or follow us and catch up with the archive via your preferred podcast platform. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs. The Entrepreneurs.